The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. And I'm your advocate host, Ren Zuski. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. So this week, we have a very important organization with a very long name here mm-hmm. with us. It is the Virginia Sexual and Domestic Violence Action Alliance. Did Say I do that, that five right? times fast? I positively can't, but we, ha- we have um, a crew from the Alliance with us to talk about um, disability, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, and um, the resources available if somebody is having a hard time. Um, I feel like this is as good a time as any to put a pretty strong content warning on this episode. Um, we certainly don't get into anything graphic, but if our listeners um, are not comfortable with talking about the subjects of domestic violence or sexual assault, this might not be the right episode for them. But we, it's, they do incredible work. And I think one of the things uh, DLCV wants to promote uh, through this episode and in future episodes is this intersectionality of issues, how different things that affect people in the community also, how they particularly affect folks with disabilities. So um, that's something we really want to highlight. And we're so happy that the Action Alliance is with us today. But before we jump in, let's check out Disability in the News. Federal funding to support respite care for families of those with disabilities will increase dramatically under new legislation. The legislation is called the Lifespan Respite Care Reauthorization Act, and it increased funding for the Lifespan Respite Care Program to $10 million annually through 2024. This pro- program supports an entire network of community-based respite care services across the country. This is a $7.6 million increase from the previous legislation. The legislation was introduced in 2006, and since then, 41 states have received grants to create resources and help ensure the respite care is widely available to caregivers. There are an estimated 53 million family caregivers across the country, so the legislation will help make sure family caregivers will receive quality respite services especially during the pandemic. Okay, so again, today we have staff from the Virginia Sexual and Domestic Violence Action Alliance with us today. Um, Specifically, we've got Carmen, Courtney, Reed, and Caitlin. Thank you guys all for being with us today and answering all of our questions. Thank you to you for the invitation. So first and foremost, just to get the ball rolling, 
tell us about your organization, the Virginia Sexual and Domestic Violence Action Alliance, and what it is that you guys do. The Action Alliance is the Virginians' leading voice on sexual and intimate partner violence. Our history is rooted in the battered women's and rape crisis movement. And of course, the values that define these movements, including working towards social justice, self-determination, and to end the oppression of women. So the Action Alliance is the result of joining of the Virginians against domestic violence and Virginians aligned against sexual assault. So these two groups were both formed in 1981 by a small group of grassroots activists who were organizing within Virginia to establish shelters, rape crisis centers, and had lines. And of course, to raise awareness about rape and domestic violence. So these activists began meetings throughout Virginia, but, but with very, really few resources, but with a strong commitment to sharing information and developing strategies for social change. So the Action Alliance practically became Action Alliance uh, the, the coalition in 2004. Over the years, the Action Alliance has grown, but remains true to the visions of its founders. So that is just a little bit about the origin of the, how the Action Alliance or the coalition was formed. Hi, so this is Reed. Uh, pronouns are here, they, and I am um, on the hotline at the Action Alliance. I can give a little overview of kind of what services and things look like now. Um, so at the state coalition, we have membership services. So that can look like technical assistance and support to local sexual and domestic violence agencies across the state, of which there are over 60. So every city, county, and town has a place where folks can go to receive services that are free and confidential. Um, we also have our training institute. So that provides training and support to member agencies, the general public, and allied professionals. Um, right now, we've pivoted with uh, COVID-19. So there's a lot of virtual learning opportunities that we have available. Um, many of them are free. So we, we welcome anyone to join and sign up um, and participate in ways that feel good to them. Uh, we also have that policy piece. So that can look like things on the local level, uh, certainly things on the state level and also federal um, support. And we have other types of services, uh, the direct service aspect, which the members of um, staff who are on the call today, including myself, are a part of. Um, so we have our statewide hotline, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We also have chat and text services. So chat can be accessed by um, visiting fadata.org slash chat. Um, we can share that link out with everyone. Um, or texting us at 
793-9999. And we have an LGBTQ helpline. Um, That is something we also answer just because we found that members of that community um, really wanted a dedicated service and to know that staff who were gonna respond um, understood their unique needs. And we also welcome folks who maybe don't identify as part of the community, but are allied professionals who would call in. Um, We also offer as part of our direct services answering for the PREA hotline, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So if you're an adult incarcerated in a facility um, in Virginia, you are welcome to dial out for support, uh, emotional support around sexual assault or um, sexual harassment while you have been incarcerated. Um, And lastly, um, the piece that you'll see these other staff members are a big part of is our Project for Empowerment of Survivors. So that's going to be um, our legal team of folks who help assist um, survivors who are working with the court system or the legal system around lots of different issues um, as it affects them. and I'm trying to think if there were any other pieces of coalition work I might be missing. Um, I feel like those are a lot of the big pieces, but certainly what, what Carmen said around education and awareness, that's also just kind of the general um, piece that we, we all share um, and are happy to um, provide resources for folks. That's a very impressive list of services. So <laughs> I am, yes, I am very impressed. Um, with, with everything you do, one thing that really jumped out at me is that project for the empowerment of survivors. Um, could we get a little bit more details about some of the cases you take on or what that work really looks like in particular? So Caitlin and I work with the project for the empowerment of survivors as um, the attorneys um, with the agency, and we work closely with um, with uh, Kathy Coleman, who's not able to be on this call today, and with and with Carmen. Um, and so, what um, what Caitlin and I do as the attorneys, as you know, people well, people call into the hotline, they'll speak, um, you know, and then and then they end up they speak speak with Carmen or Kathy. They go over the legal issues that they have. And, um, you know, it's any kind of legal problem that comes out of an abuse situation. So, of course, that can be a lot of legal problems. It's a lot of family law, um, you know, protective orders, of course. Um, But then there's also, um, you know, ancillary issues like, well, you know, landlord-tenant kinds of problems. Um, So, you know, criminal, um, we we get some questions about criminal law. So, really, it's a a pretty vast array of different problems. uh, legal issues that that survivors have coming out of their abuse situations. And so what Caitlin and I provide is, um, you know, over the phone consultations for up to an hour, um, we know where we can give case specific legal advice, you know, based on what the client is telling us. And then we also help direct the client, you know, we kind of issue spot and we help direct them to other um, uh, legal services if that's appropriate. Um, we might give um, referrals for private attorneys um, in the area in which they live because of course they're all over the state. Um, and so, um, so, so yeah, so that's what we kind of do um, in terms of direct services. Now, um, we also have the, the legal fund, which is a really amazing service. So it's, um, you, you know, it's a, it's, it's a pool of money that's there for um, survivors to access to, to pay legal fees because of course, Caitlin and I can't take on 
any kind of direct representation since we're limited to over the phone consultation. So if survivors need in-court representation, they're going to you know, either have to get it themselves through a private attorney or get it through legal aid and private attorneys can be very expensive. So the legal fund can be there to help cover some of those costs. And so, um, you know, the legal fund is, is designed to help people with, um, so um, like who, who have, uh, who have um, like minorities or people that have um, like um, a, a background that makes them particularly vulnerable. So, so the, the fund can help anybody, but we try to specifically target people within those more kind of like vulnerable um, communities. So, um, so yeah, the legal fund is a really amazing resource. Um, and that is, that is another way that we can help survivors with, um, you know, legal issues. And um, something that, that, that Caitlin and I have done too, is um, try to do some networking with attorneys throughout the state who are willing to work with this legal fund um, because um, they have to be willing to accept certain conditions, these attorneys, in order to accept funding through the legal fund. So, um, so networking with attorneys throughout the state is also an important piece of this, um, you know, PES, the, the um, Project for the Empowerment of Survivors. So um, does that seem like a pretty good summary, Caitlin, Carmen, do y'all have anything to add? That was a great explanation. And, um, and like Courtney mentioned, the legal fund really is meant to be a stopgap for folks who fall through the cracks. So for survivors who don't qualify for legal aid for one reason or another, but otherwise can't really afford representation, that's really where the legal fund is meant to fill in the gap. Um, so we always uh, rely on legal aid and, and refer clients to legal aid if they can access those services. That's always our first uh, first referral. Um, and so like Courtney mentioned, for marginalized groups, for, for, for folks who are uh, from marginalized communities, we do earmark, earmark those funds to um, try to access discounted or pro bono legal services for the folks who can't otherwise access legal aid. So that was the only thing, but otherwise Courtney explained it great. So. So you guys, um, you've talked about sort of how important it is to mature outreaching and providing services to um, minority and underserved communities. Can you tell us a little bit how um, disability factors into that and into your work in general? Yeah, so, and, and I'll let um, Reed sort of talk about the, the hotline um, piece of this, but from the PES perspective, um, like I mentioned, we do earmark funds for um, for underserved communities and differently abled folks are certainly part of that. And so whenever, you know, if we have a survivor that presents with um, a disability or, or some other, you know, trouble accessing traditional legal services, that person is going to become a priority for us. And so in terms of the, how PES would work with that, um, that might be someone that we would certainly refer to legal projects um, that would benefit existing legal projects, but um, but would also be a really a, a priority candidate for use of the legal fund. Thanks, Caitlin. Um, I did want to highlight a couple of things around ability status and um, kind of power and control and how it shows up in relationships. Um, so, you know, on the hotline, a lot of our conversations are around like, is my relationship healthy or what's going on? Um, or like I'm asking kind of questions around what, uh, what does this look like for me? And, and, and that's what survivors are asking us. Um, so some things to think about. A lot of times when we talk about sexual and domestic violence, people think about things that are really clear cut situations. For example, 
Um, there is physical abuse. This person has hit me, shoved me, pushed me. They think about um, the sexual violence aspect of whether that is, you know, rape or, or, or these different types of events or behaviors that happen. Um, but I, I just want to mention that it takes a lot of different forms. So that can look like coercion or threats. So maybe, you know, I'm going to harm your pet or um, your emotional support animal. Um, I'm going to, um, you know, give you more of your medication than what you're supposed to take. And that makes you groggy or disoriented. Um, I'm going to withhold support or treatment. So I'm not going to take you to that doctor's appointment or I'm going to do something to make you more dependent on me. Um, I might break your phone or take away assistive devices. Um, the emotional abuse that comes into play, insulting folks, shaming people, outing people, you know, maybe your status isn't readily visible, but um, they're sharing that with an employer or with friends or family or other people who you haven't given permission to share. Um, isolation is a big one, especially right now during COVID, um, because all of our supports look different, you know, the typical trips to the grocery store or how we might be social and interact are, are, are not happening and certainly not happening in the same way as they were before. And it's probably gonna continue for a while. Um, so how are you maintaining your support system and the, the people that you love and trust? Are you, are you talking with them about what's happening in your life? Um, someone who is hurting you might minimize, deny or blame you um, for what's going on. Oh, they just fell out of their chair. They're forgetful. They didn't take their medicine. They're just not being compliant, you know. Um, and really cause you to question or gaslight about like what has actually happened. Um, even going so far as to do things like moving furniture around somebody's home, uh, making it more difficult to get around or um just be like, oh no, that lamp has always been there and, and causing you to ask questions like, has it though? I don't recall it being that way. Um, and sexual abuse, you know, particular activities kind of come to mind for a lot of people. Um, but this also means decisions around birth control or um, pregnancy, um, or maybe that other person is, um, you know, seeing other people and that's not an arrangement that you have set up in your relationship. Um, Economic abuse is a big one, and that's probably where we get a lot of calls from folks, whether you're in a um, facility where you, you need a higher level of care and support, or you, you're, you're working with a caretaker, and that person is controlling other money, and you're not sure where that disability money is going. Um, maybe uh, there's some sort of favor or exchange that's having to happen. Um, or, you know, you've got the opportunity to work or to be um, doing other things, but that person doesn't let you. Uh, and lastly, the person who might, who is able-bodied or has that kind of privilege might be making some decisions on your behalf, right? So that could look like overprotecting you, um, making decisions without talking with you about them, um, and keeping tabs on you because of safety, but in reality, it's about control and power, right? Um, or just taking over tasks, again, to kind of increase that dependence. 
And this can happen across the lifespan too. I feel like a lot of our conversations happen with folks who might be older or who might be in a facility or have a high, higher level of care, but we're talking about anybody who um, may need to interact with folks in a lot of different relationships. So you're talking about a caregiver, you're also talking about maybe a romantic partner, um, it could be friends or family. It can look like a lot of different things, but I, I understand that it gets complex and complicated pretty quickly. Um, but I, I do want everyone to know that we have support and we're here. Um, and if we are not the best resource, we will find the best one for you. Um, there are lots of agencies who work with specific communities or particular issues in general. So if it's not our specialty, um, I, I promise that there's someone out there who it's, it's theirs. So we're all about making sure that folks stay connected and happy and healthy, um, regardless of what else is going on in the world. Thank you, Reed. That was, I mean, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about um, domestic and sexual violence and what that looks like. I think people have a really black and white understanding and particularly involving disability. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about how that's looked at. Um, you actually mentioned, it has kind of pinged that idea, the idea of a romantic partner. Um, what kind of misconceptions do you all kind of see in your work and try to educate people on in relation to like disability and sexual domestic violence? I think that's a great question, Ren, about what does it look like, particularly in romantic partnerships, right? Whether boyfriend, girlfriend, person you're dating, whoever that might be. Um, you know, it, it, sh it shows up in lots of different ways, but I will say for a lot of people, um, that initial part of your relationship, you know, that kind of honeymoon phase, if you will, you know, someone doesn't show you everything about them initially. So the relationship might start out really great and, and things are going really well. And then little pieces uh, kind of add up. So whether it's like, oh, let me take care of this. Oh, I'm gonna um, go ahead and do that, but they haven't talked to you about it. And then all of a sudden, you you have some time to reflect or maybe you're talking with a friend or a family member who's like hey I haven't heard from you in a while like this is just um this doesn't seem like you or you've never expressed interest in these particular things before that you know tell me more about <laughs> what's happening um so I think for a lot of people upon reflection and when we talk about some of these pieces of power and control they're like oh but you know the dots are connected of like actually some of these things have been happening for me, and this is um, more than just a one-time event. And that's what makes abuse different from, for example, an argument or a disagreement. We're human. We're all going to have moments where we do not see eye to eye or we do not agree with someone else. That is perfectly normal. But when you've got a pattern going on and it almost feels like a cycle, um, and for some people it is pretty regular and you're able to predict like, this is the trigger. Okay. And this person is dealing with stuff at work. Things do get worse or um, you're able to kind of isolate different pieces, but sometimes it's not that clear. It's really muddy and it, it takes conversation and advocacy with someone that you love and trust to figure out, oh, actually, I don't know that this is the healthiest uh, relationship for me. And I don't know that I want to continue it in this way. And that person may be willing to go on a journey with you and and change and and really think about their behaviors and what's going on and then 
or they may not. And so that's the other hard part of, you know, what, what does it look like if I need to separate or if that is different? Because we know that statistically speaking, you know, when separation happens, when that person leaves or the person who is abusing feels like this is going to be over and this is threatening, um, that's the most dangerous time for survivors. So navigating that in a careful, thoughtful way and safety planning out kind of different pathways is really, really critical for ensuring everybody's safety involved. I just really appreciate that breakdown because I think one of the things that just an overall disability advocacy that we see is this misunderstanding that people with disabilities can be in romantic relationships. We see a lot of that infantilization occurring. And so um, I think that really plays into a lot of the things that you've talked about and how these things can play out. Um, so again, I think that breakdown is really important. And I think, again, this overall understanding about how these dynamics play and how people with disabilities, you know, can have, you know, these relationships that have these same things. It, it, them being disabled does not mean they can't have romantic partners. It cannot mean they can't, you know, be subject to uh, domestic and sexual violence. So um, I really, I think that breakdown is really useful. With all of misconceptions around um, disability, I think that one of the things that a lot of people don't consider is just the intersectional nature of disability. Um, and Carmen, I think you wanted to uh, say something about the, you know, often yeah. overlooked but critically important um, people with disabilities in immigrant communities. Exactly. I, I was... You know, I didn't, to be very honest, I just didn't pay too much attention about the immigrant community with disabilities. And I was reading a little bit about disabilities and I couldn't believe that people with intellectual disabilities are up to 12 times more likely to experience sexual, sexual violence. I was like shocked. I mean, I said, I said, oh my God, I didn't, how can I didn't pay attention to that? You know, something so important, intellectual, also disabilities, mental disabilities, people are the ones that suffer more. And now when you invited us, I was thinking, oh my God, how I didn't realize that one of my clients that speak only, she speaks Spanish, but she only called me and communicate with me, leaving me, sending me text messages, but not writing, you know, not by WhatsApp, she recorded her messages. And I never realized, and I was sending her written, uh, you know, information or talking to her. And then she sent me against the voicemail. I don't know how to read. So please send me all the information. And I felt so bad. I said, wow. So you, when you were talking, you mentioned um, some aspects of communication. Um, specifically, you mentioned a client that you were working with who, you know, they they were not able to necessarily read and write the same way that you and I would. And so you had to figure out sort of workaround communications for that. And especially when it comes to interpretation services for people, um, you speak another language, um, that's certainly an issue that we also see a lot um, in the disability community is access to interpreters. So if, for instance, one of our listeners um, is listening to this, they go, absolutely, I want to get in touch with these folks, but I need some kind of accommodation to do that, whether it's like a sign language interpreter 
or if it's alternative materials because of a visual impairment, um, how do they let you know that they um, might need an accommodation? So we're happy to, um, we, we take calls with um, interpreters on a regular basis. So if that is something that someone needs, whether it's in a language other than English or something that's visual, we can uh, we can do a video call if that's if that's needed. Um, if someone needs things in large print or in a different language, we're happy to provide that in advance or to email things if there's a safe email address for that. Um, and, and whatever folks might need. Um, I know I've worked with uh, people who have requested to have everything in writing afterwards or to have a transcript of something just because they want to be able to reference things. That's not a problem. Um, we're happy to, to do whatever we can to make that accommodation. And if again, if we can't make that ourselves, then we will um, use, a, use a service to provide that um, just because we, we do have limitations on um, as far as, you know, what staff speak, what languages and, and when they're available to work and things like that. If folks need accommodations, by all means, let us know. We will figure it out. Um, and certainly we're happy to um, have that challenge too, because that means that we're becoming and being better about accessibility. And Carmen, I think uh, you could probably talk a little bit about our um, our staff as a whole are really looking to become uh, a more accessible service. So that looks like doing audits on ourselves and consulting with folks outside the agency, um, making sure that we're providing things that honestly should be pretty standard across the board. So that looks like closed captioning, that looks like ASL for events, that looks like um, the ability to have things in multiple languages, both written and verbal. Um, we really want to, to be able to live through our accessibility police and have a good plan in place. So certainly we welcome folks to reach out um, and we'd love to, to work with you to, to be better about that. Yeah, what I, what I would like to add really is about, for example, when we talk to the client I was talking before, you know, I had to work with the police, making sure, because she speaks only Spanish, making sure I was a police officer who speaks Spanish. Not only that I speak Spanish, but, you know, that, that's when I say, you know, the advocacy, the connection, and also work with the advocate from the local sexual violence program or domestic violence program, making sure that when they go to the court, especially with the legal advocate, making sure when they go to the court, they have, um, um, you know, the, the language access that they have, uh, because many of them, because the limited English proficiency, they had, you know, they have all the rights to ask for an interpretation. And you have to remember also with the, in the immigrant communities, also a problem, not necessarily, you have to assume that everybody speaks Spanish. They speak other dialects that are very difficult. So it is, you know, language access is not only is more than words. It is much more than words that the language access. But that is so very important. Like, well, again, I said, you know, working together, all, all together, trying to find, and that is the word of the advocate, uh, on the legal piece, making sure in the court, in the legal advocate request for an interpreter, for not only an interpreter, but has to be uh, somebody that is trained, very well trained, because sometimes bad interpretations, interpretations can hurt the case. So that, that is really fundamental and work making sure you're asking the question, the police officer, when you talk to the police officer, I spoke, I spoke to you in Spanish and English, that 
So in English, so we had to request, we had to call, you know, make, make those connections with the advocate and making sure that we get all the people that can understand the client and, and the, or the victim of survival and, and, and to feel, you know, to, to practically provide the services that is in need for, specifically for that person at that moment. And we were, we were talking also the language access, uh, the organization. One of the things that we have to start is to use everyone at the Action Alliance, all the staff should learn how to use the language line services. So sometimes people don't necessarily call for emergencies, they can call for any other thing. You're not necessarily for headline domestic violence or sexual violence, maybe any other information. So we have, we have to start to learn how to use the language line because unfortunately, we cannot pay interpreters in or people, bilingual people in many different languages, but at least that is an outlet. That's a way to help survivors. But uh, working all together and advocating uh, um, for the client survivor and connecting with the police, connecting with the local domestic violence program, connecting with other services and making sure that they provide those language access services, I think it is very important. Again, you guys clearly provide some incredible services. Um, if someone wants to find out more about the Alliance and what y'all do, um, how can they do that? How can they get in touch with you? They can call the Action Alliance. Our telephone number is 804-377-0335. So just like Carmen mentioned, that first number that she gave, the 804 number, is our office line. So that's a a typical business line, Monday through Friday, nine to five. However, the hotline number that she shared, that 1-800-838-8238, that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So no matter what holiday or what's going on, um, I will say there are times when we're busy, um, just peak times happen kind of throughout the day and at different points. Um, you're always welcome to send us a chat or a text or an email if that's easier. So um, the chat link is www.v as in Victor, a as in Apple, data, D-A-T-A dot O-R-G slash chat. And then our text line is 804-793-9999. So I know people have different services or different devices. Um, so the texting, depending on what your plan is, you know, you may have fees with your carrier. Um, but it's, that's like a regular phone number that you would text, just like if you were to text your, your friend. Um, if you want to do email for the legal team, the best way to reach them is going to be legal at bsdvalliance.org. Um, and then for the hotline, very similar, hotline at bsdvalliance.org. Um, we're happy to take requests in whatever ways uh, that may come up. And certainly if you have accommodation needs that um, you'd like to share beforehand, you're welcome to do that. Um, and certainly if it comes up in conversation, we're happy to, um, to figure that out as well. So just know that the, the hotline services are available around the clock and then our, our legal team kind of keep those traditional hours, but we're certainly willing to make appointments and work with folks depending on safety and availability, okay? So that is gonna be um, HTTPS colon backslash backslash, and then it's VSDV Alliance 
podcasts.org. So at least that last part of our email. Um, and, you know, you should find things pretty, um, we did do kind of a basic accessibility uh, audit before it launched. So as far as contrast goes and things like that, uh, it should be okay. What I will say, if you have any difficulties, please let us know. We definitely want to make sure that folks are able to access it no matter what device or app or thing that they may be using um, to better uh, see the things that they need. So yes, and technology is forever a challenge for all of us. And I, I'm extremely grateful um, to have been invited and, and Carmen, thank you for um, making that happen. And um, yeah. Well, thank you everybody for um, for joining us, um, for giving us a better look at not just um, the not just the alliance, but also sort of this issue as a whole and how it affects different communities, especially communities um, surrounding disability. So again, thank you so much. Um, and listeners, as always, we will have all of those links and numbers in the show notes in our transcript. And now, a DLCV highlight. DLCV recently investigated a huge spike in the number of abuse, neglect complaints against Catawba Hospital. This led to our discovery of problems with the quality of care the hospital provided to patients with dysphagia and other swallowing disorders. In an effort to address the care needs for these patients, the hospital joined the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization or SICK initiative and made policy and practice changes to ensure the accuracy of diet orders, transfer responsibilities for preparation of artificially thickened liquids and mechanically processed food items from unit staff to trained dietitians and replace our system of categorical standard diets with individualized meal planning protocols. So thank you again to the crew from the Virginia Sexual and Domestic Violence Action Alliance um, for taking the time to give us a really comprehensive overview of what it is that we do and the issues at play. Yeah, they do incredible work. We're so lucky that they um, were able to join us today. And obviously, any of their resources we're going to have available to our listeners. Um, and again, hopefully, we're going to have even more intersectional content in the future. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, share us with your friends, and leave a review. If you need assistance or more information about DLCV and what you we do, you can visit us online at dlcv.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Disability Law Center of Virginia. And like us, subscribe to us, share us with your friends, share us with strangers who seem like they have good taste, share us all around. Far and wide. And next time, I am Ren Fizuski. And I'm Virginia Ferris. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. <laughs>